Welcome to SAD Podcast. This is Case Rietmeier. In the past year, there have been a number of important developments in the area of HIV and SD prevention. The change in administration will also have a significant impact on the prevention agenda. According to media reports, Mr. Obama is poised to reverse some of the absence-based prevention curricula in favor of condom promotion and other science-based interventions as soon as he takes office. In other developments, just a few weeks ago, the WHO came out with a study that suggests that frequent HIV testing and early treatment could have a significant impact on HIV prevalence. Time to check in with the chief of the nation's premier HIV and SE prevention organization. A few weeks ago, we spoke with Dr. Kevin Fenton, the director of the National Center for HIV, Hepatitis, STD, and TB Prevention, in his office in Atlanta, Georgia. It seems that in the past 10 years, there's been a shift in HIV prevention that could be maybe described as a medicalization of prevention, with a movement away from behavioral interventions to prevent acquisition of HIV to a, a policy that is much more focused on HIV testing and getting HIV-infected persons into care and treatment. There's a growing argument, if you will, that getting HIV-infected persons on antiretroviral treatment will reduce viral load in plasma and genital secretions and will thus result in reducing the chances of transmission. There's even some discussion right now as to whether treatment of HIV-infected persons uh, should be a frontline public health strategy to reducing the transmission of HIV. What do you think of that? Can we treat ourselves out of this epidemic? Well, first of all, let me just reiterate that from CDC's perspective, we've always believed in a balanced portfolio as far as HIV prevention is concerned, a portfolio which focuses both on uh, ensuring that everybody's aware of their HIV status, linking people who are diagnosed HIV positive to care, promoting HIV testing, working, of course, with people who are living with the virus. And within this, to look at not only the behavioral aspects of prevention, but the social and other types of support which need to be a part of the prevention, both at the individual as well as the community and societal level. But the reality is that the prevention toolkit is not infinite. We have a certain number of effective behavioral interventions which we are now, which are now available, which we are disseminating. But there are tremendous uh, concerns with respect to the scale and coverage of these effective behavioral interventions. We also have interventions such as HIV testing and the provision of antiretroviral therapy. You know, those are areas, where interventions where we have greater coverage. And certainly we have opportunities for extending those through promoting HIV testing, linkage to care and treatment. So to get back to your original question, which is, can we treat our way out of the epidemic? I think the reality is treatment is perhaps the modality which is one that we know works. Mm -hmm. We know that it is highly effective. And whereas we may not treat our way out of an epidemic, it certainly is the best tool that we have at our disposal at the moment. And CDC is certainly committed to looking at innovative ways in which we can use treatment as part of the prevention armamentarium. So, for example, whether it is pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, or PrEP, whether it's looking at intermittent pre-exposure prophylaxis, whether it is starting individuals who are diagnosed positive earlier in the course of their uh, infectious disease. These are all ways in which we can use treatment much more creatively to advance the prevention agenda. Right. So are you concerned that when we are really talking about the medicalization with more and more people being put on, on treatment, that in, in, in that regard, 
folks might sort of conceive themselves of being less infectious and therefore might actually enhance and increase their risk behavior so that there's going to be kind of an offsetting of, of balances here. Well, that certainly is one of the big concerns about moving down a track which only focuses on medical therapy as part of your prevention toolkit. Right. And that is why having comprehensive approaches where we involve and relate to behavioral approaches, social approaches, other support services around prevention as part of a comprehensive right. uh, approach to prevention is really important. So I don't think the discussion is an either or, mm-hmm. but that as we move forward with uh, treatment and treatment for prevention, that we begin to look at ways in which we work with other sectors to have that comprehensive prevention portfolio. Uh-huh. Um, so as more and more HIV-infected patients are entering treatment, and probably even at an earlier stage of their disease, I would sort of suggest there's a significant opportunity for risk reduction intervention in the HIV care setting. What is CDC currently doing to support prevention efforts in this particular setting? And do you think there's been a sufficient amount of research that has been done in this area? Well, I think this has certainly been one of the four key platforms for CDC's HIV prevention efforts, which is working with people who are diagnosed with HIV and ensuring that they both are adherent to treatment and care services, but that we maximize opportunities for secondary prevention with those individuals. Mm-hmm. So in the prevention toolkit, which we have at CDC, as you know, there are a range of effective interventions which are available for use with people who are living with HIV, mm-hmm. both to achieve better adherence or to reduce onward, the onward risk of transmission of HIV. Do we have enough tools to target this population subgroup? I would say no. And this is certainly an area of concern for us at CDC. And it means that we need to be working far more closely with our colleagues at NIH and with HRSA to ensure that the pipeline for developing these effective interventions for HIV-positive people are supported and developed and accelerated. It also means that we not only think about the number of tools that we have, but ensure that we are able to scale up the ones that we have available. Mm. And we know that there are tremendous barriers to ensuring widespread dissemination of the effective interventions which we currently have uh, available. Some of these barriers include the human resources, the financial uh, constraints which are required to deliver these interventions. Uh, Certainly they also revolve, some of these barriers revolve around the feasibility of implementing them in busy HIV clinics Uh or community centers. So these are things that we have to do in tandem with developing new interventions for HIV-positive people. So talking about effective interventions, one of the main conduits, if you will, that CDC has deployed um, for primary prevention has been the so-called dissemination uh, of effective behavioral intervention, or the DEBBIE project. However, there are some questions as to whether these interventions still work in the post-heart era. Uh, For example, one of the DEBBIE interventions was recently evaluated in a very large multi-site international trial and was not really shown to be more effective than standard prevention services. So you can wonder whether the focus on replication of interventions that have been shown to be effective in the past in the research setting is the most effective way of improving the level of prevention services in the real-world program environment. So what are your feelings about that, and what would be the best way to improve primary prevention programs in the United States? Well, you know, what you have highlighted here is the real difference between the sort of of efficiency versus effectiveness. It's moving from the um, randomized controlled trial setting to the real-life experiences of program implementation. And what 
this really underscores this, is the importance of, of an ongoing program of monitoring and evaluation as we're rolling out these debbies and as these debbies are being adapted to focus on different geographic locations or different population subgroups. Um, it is crucially important that this monitoring and evaluation is part and parcel of our efforts to roll out DEBIs. And certainly at CDC, we've been looking at ways of evaluating adaptations of DEBIs as they're being used for different populations. I think also the, the, the issue that you raise also uh, highlights the importance of the, the, the dynamism of the field and the fact that we need to be aware that we're dealing with populations which are changing, social contexts which are changing, and that many of some of the earlier debates which were developed in the pre-heart era or certainly in the last decade may not really be meeting some of the social contexts which are driving HIV and certainly sexually transmitted diseases today. So that process of continued adaptation, continued monitoring and evaluation is crucial to the success of the Debbie strategy, and that's something that CDC is committed to doing. So are you seeing a, a major shift in the way that, that, that CDC is going to go about this? Uh, is there going to be sort of more of a, of, a, of a synthesis of what we currently know and with a greater emphasis on, on how it works in the real world in, in a program environment? Well, I think CDC is committed to doing this, and certainly there are instances where we have been involved with working with local partners to look at how DEBIs are being rolled out and to begin to understand how specific DEBIs are, the effectiveness of specific DEBIs in the field. And certainly as we think about priorities over the next four years or certainly over the next uh, uh, decade, this clearly is going to be an important part of what we do with respect to the, determining the effectiveness of the, the DEBIs. Right. So talking about the program environment, um, last year you have launched an initiative here at CDC to better coordinate HIV, STD, hepatitis, and TB prevention services at the program level. This is the so-called Program Collaboration and Service Integration Initiative, or PCSI. Um, and uh, CDC has released a number of documents on this initiative already in the past year and a half. And there was a consult uh, sorry, there was a consultation in Atlanta in August of last year. Where do we stand with this project and what are the next steps? Well, you know, I'm so excited by this initiative and I'm also excited by the way that this has really caught the imagination and hearts of our prevention partners across the country and indeed uh, internationally as well as we think about ways in which we can better coordinate, integrate and collaborate across program lines, but also to ways in which we can improve intersectoral collaboration for HIV and STD prevention as well. Over the past 18 months, we've made tremendous uh, headway with a number of interventions related to PCSI, including uh, raising awareness about the initiative, right. clarifying the vision, clarifying what we're trying to achieve and key milestones for the initiative. The consultation, which you mentioned, was really important in helping CDC to focus on the top priority areas for uh, achievement over the next five years. And just for your listeners, those three areas are looking at integrated surveillance, looking at integrated funding opportunities, and of course, looking at training opportunities which are integrated across our infectious diseases. Right. When looking at the, uh, the documentation that's come out so far, from a service integration perspective, one thing that appears to be missing, probably because this is not within the jurisdiction of your center, is family planning and pregnancy prevention. How do you anticipate working with others within and outside of CDC to incorporate 
this very important component of sexual health into the uh, PCSI initiative? Well, first of all, let me just say it's not been left out intentionally. And in fact, a lot of the initial focus on PCSI has been how do we get the infectious disease programs within my center to work more effectively and closely together. But behind the scenes, we actually have very strong relationships with our colleagues in the chronic disease center and with our colleagues in the Division of Adolescent and School Health and the Reproductive Health Programs at CDC to look at opportunities for collaborating across division boundaries. And there's some innovative projects and programs which have already begun with this respect, and we're hoping that we'll be able to strengthen this as we move forward. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. as we think about the next four years, you're absolutely right. There are going to be amazing opportunities for us to rethink and to reposition our prevention activities within a broader framework of health protection and sexual and reproductive health. So what is exciting about our work with our colleagues in the Division of School Health and our reproductive health colleagues is the ability to take a much more holistic view on our prevention activities and to really move the dial along a continuum of disease prevention activities towards health protection, and I would argue towards a framework for sexual health in the United States. And we're very, very excited by this. And we certainly have been speaking with our colleagues, both within our center, across federal agencies, and across CDC to get an idea of what would a focus on health protection and sexual health for the United States look like, and are we ready to move along this path, and how would we be able to achieve this in the most efficient way moving forward? So that gets us kind of full circle, you know, when you talk about a sexual health agenda, which has political overtones. Do you sort of anticipate that you know, with the change of administration, this is going to make our lives a little easier. Would you agree with that statement? Well, I think it's important that, you know, we think about opportunities which are going to arise as a result of the change in administration. There will always be things which are going to be politically palatable and things which may not be for any new administration coming in. And what is most important is that we work with our new congressional leaders and new leaders within the administration to find out what their priorities are, and how we can best push forward on our health protection goals moving forward. I think those will be the key things to do in the years ahead. To drill down a little bit further on the PCSI initiatives, uh, you know, it does make a lot of sense for those of us who are working in STD and family planning clinics, so really where the services are being provided. However, one of the problems that we're kind of seeing is that the primary constituents of your center, and actually of the Centers for Disease Control, you know, in general, are state agencies and not the clinics where the integration rubber, so to speak, hits the surface road. How do you see your initiative reach the interface where integration is going to matter most? How can these clinics and other service settings be empowered to deliver better integrated services? Uh, I think that's such a great question. And in our strategy for developing PCSI, we've always viewed this as what do we need to do to change national leadership and culture around intersectoral collaboration integration and programmatic collaboration, and what do we need to do at the ground level to ensure that clinical guidelines and recommendations do have a focus on integration and collaboration as well. So there are two tracks which we've been pushing forward independently and in parallel on PCSI. What is most important, however, is to realize that prior to two, three years ago, before this initiative started, one of the most common complaints that I got as the director of the center was that CDC was not providing national leadership mm-hmm. on collaboration and integration of services, that CDC had implemented barriers which were preventing states and consequently 
and providers to do effective integration and collaboration at grassroots level. So a big focus of the PCSI activities has been to articulate those barriers and to systematically tackle them as we move forward. But on a more granular level, if you look at some of the many of the recommendations which have been released by CDC over the past three years, you're seeing far more um, specific and explicit mention of integration and collaboration in terms of those evidence-based recommendations than there had been before. We are producing many new outputs from the National Centre which really help practitioners at the local mm -hmm. level to both conceptualise integration and to look at ways in which they can actually change your practice to align with this new national priority. Yeah. And of course, we have been training our project officers and consultants, uh, the sort of ambassadors that we have that are working in the field and providing advice to those colleagues in the, at the grassroots level about expectations around integration and collaboration. So change will take some time, but key thing that we had to focus on was removing institutional barriers and showing national leadership and the national expectation for collaboration and integration as a priority. So, you know, the leadership and the recommendations that are coming out of that, I think, is, is a very important piece of this. Um, obviously, how it will be translated and how it will be adopted in the real world, so to speak, is, mm -hmm. is yet another. And I think you're giving some suggestions about how that, that would work. Um, communication seems to be a key issue in, in sort of this interface, if you will. How do we enhance communication? And what can the new communication media, like the internet and other types of new media, what role can they play in this sort of, you know, better communicating with the field? Well, you know, communication is crucial um, to transmitting and articulating not only the priority for PCSI, certainly for our national center, but all of the other major programmatic priorities that we're going to be moving forward over the next uh, four to four years. Um, clearly, promoting collaboration and integration is, is a big priority for us. But also tackling health disparities is another huge cross-cutting priority for us as a national centre and one in which mm -hmm. we're hoping to have treme make tremendous gains over the next uh, decade. And there are other priorities which we've articulated as a national centre, a focus on global health protection and health system strengthening a focus on workforce uh, development and uh, capacity building, a focus on partnerships moving forward and strengthening uh, our partnerships and bringing traditional and non-traditional partners to the table. So underpinning all of these priorities for the National Center is having robust communication strategies. And it's really important to look at it in two ways. One, what channels are we using to get the message out and to what audiences? And secondly, what are the objectives of our communication strategies as we move forward? So in other words, it's important to realize that we're not only speaking now to state and local health departments, but increasingly CDC is seen as a credible voice for practitioners. We're seen as a credible voice for members of the public as well. So as we think about communication, we need to be thinking about all these audiences and how we're reaching out uh, to them around our priorities. Second, we need to think about the channels which we're using. You mentioned Web 2.0 channels which are available, whether it's the internet. Over the last year, we've invested in and developed many new uh, tools to communicate better with our audiences, whether it is the e-newsletter, which now comes out on a quarterly basis. I now have a health protection blog, which I'm doing uh, on a bi-weekly basis. We now have redeveloped our internet sites for cdc.gov. And we're now moving into a whole new template 
for a website which will really begin to provide resources for partners, members of the public, etc. So communication is going to be vital as we move forward in articulating our priorities, in being transparent about our accomplishments, and of course engaging our partners and the public in our journey forwards with prevention. Well, Dr. Fenton, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. SCD podcasts are produced by Ben Westergaard for the Internet and SCD Center of Excellence. This is Case Reekmeyer for SCD Prevention Online. 